Romans 9, verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge from the outset that there are some questions that we have that revolve around the the topic of your sovereignty and our responsibility before you that I'm sure there'll be questions that are left unanswered here. But those questions which are given answers, I pray that we would receive those answers and enjoy those answers and be led to worship you further by the revelation that you have granted. We acknowledge from the outset that you are God and we are not. We recognize that you are the creator and we are the creatures. And we're completely dependent upon you for life, breath, and all things. We acknowledge your, your goodness, your greatness, and we come humbly before you seeking to understand your ways just a little bit better, not to stand as judges over you, but to stand as your subjects, as your servants, trying our very best to understand our place in this world and how it is that you would seek to use us to bring glory to your own name. Pray you help us do that better today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Last week, we looked at the first part of Paul's response to the objection he predicted was sure to follow, a prediction that I'm sure he was sure would follow because he had encountered this objection before in his missionary journeys. In Romans 9.19, he asks the question from the objector, the hypothetical objector, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And we tell from Paul's response to that objection that that objection wasn't being delivered from a place of humility or from a desire to receive clarification. Rather, the objector was in sore need of an attitude adjustment before anything else could be said. He needed to be put in his place. Who are you, O man? The one answering back to God. There are many varieties of questions, and not all questions deserve the same response. In fact, a wise man will select the sort of response that's fitted to the sort of question that's being asked. A sincere inquiry might best be answered with a straightforward response, while disingenuous questions and arrogant objections may require a swift rebuke Or sometimes they might be considered unworthy of a response at all. Not all questions ought to be answered. Questions that betray a rebellious spirit or a disingenuous demeanor are particularly in need of correction. And nowhere is that more needful than in discussions between creatures and their creator. Before we hazard speaking... It's appropriate for us to remember who we are, who we're speaking to, and if we have a place and an opportunity to speak, what is fitting for me to say in light of this relationship? Oh man, remember, you the one putting questions to God, remember who you are and remember who he is. You cannot put God in the dock. 
God is not the one under your examination. You are under his. You are under his judgment. It is not the other way around. And when applied to the situation here at hand, we have to remember that God is the potter and we are the clay. It's obviously inherently right for God to do whatever he wants with what is his. He is in charge and he is free to accomplish all his good pleasure. For we to complain against this is to forget something very fundamental about the nature of reality. That is, that God has a fundamental, undeniable, unimpeachable position as our creator and as our sovereign and as man's only savior. God can condemn those whom sin against him. He can also save sinners, forgiving them. And he's under no obligation to man to give him one or the other, nor is he accountable to man for the actions that he takes. To think that God is accountable to you for how he acts and that he has to meet your standard of judgment is to invert the inherent relationship that man has with God. When Paul offers this potter and pot illustration, we saw from last week that he was doing this from a rich theological and literary heritage of appealing to that illustration. Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all instructed God's people by use of this analogy. Perhaps the best one happens in Isaiah 45.9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? The Bible consistently presents God as in charge of everything. God is not beholden to his creatures in order to accomplish his purposes. He is God. He will accomplish his good pleasure. And he has an utterly free will. He is free to choose as he desires, to do with a lump of clay whatever he wants. Remember, we are all formed from one lump one lump of clay descending from Adam. And from Adam, what do we get? We get the fall. We get sin. We get condemnation. All of us deserve judgment. The entire lump of clay is worthy of hellfire. And some will indeed receive that judgment. While God, from his sheer unmerited favor, his grace and mercy, will rescue some from that lump some will be saved from that destruction. As Hendrickson put it, quote, if even a potter has the right over the same lump or massive clay to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, then certainly God, our maker, has the right out of the same mass of human beings who by their own guilt have plunged themselves into the pit of misery to elect some to everlasting life and to allow others to remain in the abyss of their wretchedness. What we noticed together last week is that Paul doesn't back down from the strong statements he's been making here in Romans 9, nor does he reply to the objection about God being free to do whatever he wants and say, like, oh, well, that's actually what I meant. No, he doubles down on it, if anything. His first response to those who claim that God is unjust if he holds men responsible and yet God is sovereign over all things is to remind man who's making that objection of his place. Man does not sit in judgment over God. From what position and by what authority does a pot rise up to criticize its potter? But that's not all that Paul says in response. And this morning we're going to look at the second half of his response. For I believe the second half of this response has some really important things for us to digest and to glory in and to be excited about. For if a man is properly humbled by the first part of Paul's response and made mindful of his place before Almighty God, he might be led to understand a bit more about why God is doing what he's doing. Now, I'll admit up front, even as I prayed before the beginning of the sermon, there are limits to the answers that we are given to questions that we might have by God. But there are reasonable and good answers that are given to a lot of questions that we have. Deuteronomy 29.29 comes to mind in this regard. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Notice that there is a, there's a division of things to be known. 
There are some things that God knows that we'll never know, and then there are some things that God has chosen to reveal that we ought to know, but it's possible that we don't know. <laughs> but we ought to know. The things revealed are for us and our sons forever. We should know those things and pass them on. But meanwhile, there are some things that God holds to himself. He doesn't answer all of our questions, but he does answer many. Some answers may not be given uh, to us due to his knowledge of our frailty. There might be some things that we're perhaps better off not knowing. Some things might not be revealed because we're finite beings and we cannot grasp some things that the infinite God knows. Some things might not be revealed as of yet, but might be revealed in the future. Consider the ongoing history of progressive revelation, things being revealed progressively over time. And then there are some things which the Lord may never choose to reveal. Those who go, well, I can't wait till I get to heaven and I know everything. Uh, let me check you there. You won't know everything. You'll still be a finite creature, ever learning, ever growing. God alone is the one who knows all things. And as Proverbs 25.2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search them out. So if we have taken the initial rebuke to heart, if you listen to what we talked about last week and allowed that to come, come to your heart and to do its proper work in humbling you, Paul now has something further for us to think on. A truly glorious explanation as to why God does what he does. But the reason that he gives here will only be accepted by you if your worldview has been flipped on its head. You see, if you're still where you were prior to last week's sermon, or prior to your conversion, where you've believed that man's at the center of everything, that everything is done because of us, then you're not going to like the answer that Paul's about to say. But if you've been properly put in your place and you recognize yourself as a lump of clay and he's the potter, the reasons for God's choices are sublime. They find their beginning and their end in God himself. This morning in a sermon entitled God's Purposes, we're going to note three purposes that God has in his sovereign selection of people to harden and mercy. And if you've been humbled by what he's already said, if you recognize your position before the Almighty, you're then in a proper position to hear these words and to not only hear them, but receive them, and not only receive them, but rejoice in them and worship God for them. So let's consider them together. The first, a display of righteousness and power. A display of righteousness and power. We might say here, first of all, a demonstration of wrath, a demonstration of righteous wrath. Verse 22 begins, and if. Verse 23 concludes in the Greek with a semicolon. Semicolon in Greek is translated in English as a question mark. Grammatically, we have here an if statement. And if statements, we usually will find thens to follow. If, then. But we don't have that here. And it's not just that the word then isn't there, is that the whole then clause is not there. Most commentators explain that Paul employs an anakaluthon here. That's a big word. What do we mean by that? An anakaluthon is whenever there's some sort of weird syntactical thing going on where it seems like a sentence gets started and then something interrupts it or it doesn't complete. There's some violation of the general rules of grammar. And this happens all the time in everyday speech. Where does it most often happen? It happens most often when I'm in the middle of saying something and then my brain thinks a different direction <laughs> and I mid-sentence go, oh, actually, and just go on to something else. Those are anticaluthons. But sometimes the anticaluthons are on purpose. They're sometimes purposely placed in literary works because there's something being implied. 
The, the idea is that the reader will pick up on the implications. Like, I don't have to finish the sentence. It's like me responding to one of my children who may be arguing with me, and I go, if I am your father, I'm allowing them to supply the conclusion, right? And there's a similar thing going on here. Most translations, as a result, begin verse 22 with, what if? The word what there isn't in the Greek, but what they're trying to get at here is that there's a protasis, the if part, without an apodosis, without the then part. So it's kind of like as if Paul is asking or is making a statement with an if, and he's asking it like a rhetorical question. He's inviting his reader to complete the thought himself. And I, you know, spoiler alert, I think what he's trying to say here is this. Who can question God if he's chosen to act this way? What if God does it like this? And the implied then is, who am I to say he can't? <laughs> who am I to say he's unjust? Who am I as the lump of clay to render judgment against God if he's doing it this way? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, the starting place for understanding God's purposes is recognizing our sinfulness and God's righteousness? It will always be like this. You'll never get the gospel. You'll never understand your need for Jesus if you don't see your sinfulness and you don't understand the holiness of God. Our sin provides occasion, first of all, for God's wrath to be seen. God is willing to demonstrate that wrath. And by willing, I think we should understand that we're willing here as God is well-pleased. God is favorably disposed to exact justice. In fact, these vessels are described as having been fitted for destruction. The Greek word there, katarizo, means to mend or to fit or to arrange or to prepare. It occurs several times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 13, it, the word is used to describe something being made complete in, in good senses, like complete for something. Um, Galatians 6.1, the word is used to talk about restoring a fallen brother. In 1 Thessalonians 3, it's, it's used to describe completing what is lacking in someone's faith. Doing ministry, Paul's talking about the ministry he did among them to complete what was lacking. The word complete there is this same word. In Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11, it's, it's translated to prepare. In, in, in chapter 10, about the Lord Jesus Christ being prepared a body, and in chapter 11, about the world's being prepared, the world's being fitted by God, created by him. Hebrews 13, 21, the word is translated to be equipped. In 1 Peter 5, 10, it's Christ will perfect you. So notice from all these, transla all these uh, various references, we have, we have kind of a range of, of uh, semantical meaning here of mending, fitting, preparing, finishing, completing. This verb is in the passive voice, which means that the subject doing the fitting is not explicitly stated. We're told that these vessels are having been fitted for destruction. Who's fit them for that? Who's prepared them for that? Who's perfected them unto that? Well, the passive voice leaves this open for interpretation. The options for identifying the one who's acting include maybe Adam in the Garden of Eden or the sinful man himself, each individual, or the work of Satan or God. We've already seen in Romans 5 that Adam's fall condemned us all. Adam being our federal head and representative means that when he fell in the Garden of Eden, he plunged all of his posterity into sin and rebellion as well. We are all born spiritually dead and in need of God's saving power. So you could say in some sense, Adam fitted us for destruction. But it's also further true that we sin ourselves. We manifest our rebellion in rebellious ways. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the more time that wicked men are given just gives them more opportunity to be fit for the destruction to come. Sinful men don't get less sinful, they get more sinful. 
Their judgment becomes all the more evident. Their sin might morph into other sins. It's just a variety of sins. For example, even the man who uh, kicks some addiction at the end of it just becomes arrogant and proud that he kicked his addiction, right? He's still engaged in sin. And with time going on, the judgment just becomes all the more evident. The list of rebellious acts increases over time. This is why Proverbs says, with many words is much sin, much, much problem, right? Much transgression. Why? Because the more you speak, more opportunity to show the sinfulness within. We also know that the enemy of men's souls, Satan, certainly is ever acting to kill and destroy. He'd love to encourage further sinful rebellion. He wants to fit fallen man for further accusation and further condemnation. But we mustn't forget that the main impetus of this whole passage is that God is sovereign over all things, even the hardening of some unto judgment. And so it also fits this context of the section to explain that God has fitted these vessels of wrath unto the destruction coming to them. I don't think it's inappropriate to say that all four of those might be included in this passive voice. And what are they fitted unto? Apuleia, destruction. The word is important in this context. Why? Because there are a growing number of people who have tried to argue that Romans 9 isn't speaking about eternal destinies at all. It's just about people's like relative place within redemptive history and what your service to the Lord might be or might not be. It's just about temporal roles in Great Commission work. But this word makes it undeniably clear that's not what Paul has in view. The difference in the two groups that are represented here is manifested in final judgment and unto eternal destruction or pardon unto eternal life. That's the distinction that's being made here. God is clear that there are two and only two eternal destinies possible for man, heaven or hell, and it will be one or the other. Philippians 3.18, For many walk of whom I often told you, and I'll tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. 2 Thessalonians 1, which we had read a few moments ago, verses 6 through 10, describes how it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give relief to you who are afflicted. And then it goes on to say, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Notice here, destruction wrath, judgment, and power. Which brings me to the second thing to mention here, a revelation of power. Note here, although God willing to make his wrath known and also to make his power known, to display his wrath and make his power known. I wonder if when Paul writes this, he's thinking about the allusions that he has just made in previous verses to the Exodus account. And to Pharaoh, we remember how the Exodus story provides moment after moment of God displaying his righteous wrath and anger and power. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which we noted together, was foretold to Moses before Moses ever went to Moses or Moses went ever went to Pharaoh in the first place. That hardening of Pharaoh's heart was purposed by God in order to provide the setting for God's power to be displayed. Because not only Egypt and Israel, but even the surrounding nations heard of the mighty hand of Yahweh. There was fear and trepidation of Israel's God among the nations when they heard about the marvelous signs and wonders that God performed in Egypt during the Exodus culminating with the death of the firstborn, and after that, the destruction of Pharaoh and his army, his chariots in the Red Sea. Pharaoh's resistance to God's command just added to the display of God's power. With every further, I will not let them go, God responds with more display of his power, showing Pharaoh not to be in charge and showing all the gods of Egypt not to be in charge. Remember, we even have that 
reference in Exodus where God says, I will visit my judgments against the gods of Egypt. When you think through the various plagues that happen, we see how each of these are kind of a motif on different gods in the pantheon of, e of Egyptian gods. God is showing, I'm in charge, not them. I have power, not them. Similarly, wicked people do not get away with their rebellion. They're merely storing up for themselves further consequence. Earlier in the book of Romans, Romans 2.5, we read, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, there is a sense in which God allows wicked people to continue in wicked ways, hardening in them in their wicked ways in order to bring a massive judgment to them on a day coming. They think, they view God's delay as maybe God not being there at all or as God being light on sin, but they will find out one day all they've done is stored up his wrath for them on that day. 2 Peter 2, which we also had read a few moments ago, starting verse 4 to verse 10, is another interesting passage because I just got done talking about, you know, this is an interesting case where we have these if statements without a then. Well, in 2 Peter 2, we have a bunch of if statements with an implied then. The, the then is actually stated. The, the word then isn't there, but the then comes. Listen to this. For if, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And look at this next phrase. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. To keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You see, it's one of two things. We'll talk about the good side of this in just a moment. But on the negative side of things, on the bad, the bad news side of things, Wicked people are being fitted for that destruction. They're being fitted for judgment. With every day that goes by, they commit more sin and more rebellion, and the list of those things get added to the ledger of their offenses. Nobody gets away with anything. Oh, you might think you got away with it at work. Oh, you might think that no one knew about your lie. Oh, you might think you're able to snow over everyone else. God sees it all. And just because judgment doesn't fall right now doesn't mean it won't fall. You see what's saying here is, in some sense, the added time is just building up judgment that when God unleashes his wrath, his power will be displayed in an even greater way. So God's judgment provides opportunity to display his righteous wrath and power. But we can ask the question, well, then why not just enact that judgment immediately? We know there's cases which he has, right? Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Is this really how much he sold the field for? Yes, it is. Dead. In comes in the wife. Is this how much he sold the field for? Yes, that, that was all of it. Dead. God sometimes brings swift judgment. But why doesn't he always do that? What's going on? Well, we find out the answer to that in the further statement that he makes here. You see, although God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, what if something else is going on in the meantime, the in-between, the sin, and the judgment to come? What, what could God be doing with that time? Is this needless delay? We're told here from the Apostle Paul, no. God has something else he wants to show during the in-between. What is that? Point two, a display of freedom and long-suffering. A display of freedom and long-suffering. The first is an exhibition of liberty. Let me remind you, God is free to act however he pleases. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's incredible to hear how many people want to talk about free will, free will, free will, and they're always applying that to man. Whose will is really free? God's. 
God is the one who has utterly free will. He acts however he pleases. And it is here that we encounter what theologians describe as the two wills in God. It's a phrase that's used to describe what we find in Scripture. A couple of main big, like kind of big bucket categories that are used sometimes to describe this is God's moral will or God's will of command, which includes everything that God declares pleases him. Uh, those things which accord with righteousness. Those things which accord with uprightness that are done, and, and, uh, d- done with uh, God's glory in mind and um, for his glory is the end. There's God's moral will. That's like the Ten Commandments, for example. God's sovereign will, or his will of decree, is everything that happens. Remember, because God is over all things, nothing happens apart from his will. This includes everything. Now, the reason why we distinguish between God's moral will and God's sovereign will is because there are things that happen and are therefore part of God's sovereign will that are not in accordance with God's moral will, i.e. sin and rebellion. All of that is against God's will of command, and yet his will of decree has decreed that it happened. Certainly the greatest example of this happened in connection with Jesus, his own life, right? We think of Acts 2, 22 and 24, when Peter is preaching and he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, listen, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Did the Jewish people commit sin when they handed over Jesus to be crucified? Yes. Did the Romans who crucified Jesus to the cross commit sin? Yes. Was it God's moral will that they do that? No. Was it God's sovereign will that they do that? Yes. There it is. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is find one occurrence of something happening in the world that's against what God desires for the world, and you'll see, and it still exists, (laughs) you see this moment. This dichotomy. In some sense, God has willed us to do something because that's what he desires and wants, and yet in another sense, he hasn't decreed it be that way. Prayer made in Acts 4, 27 and 28 says similarly, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, What? So your son, Jesus, God the Father, these wicked men collaborated together to do this awful thing against Jesus, which God had predestined to take place, which God had purposed to take place. Sinful men did horrible, sinful things to the Son of God, and yet those sinful actions were nonetheless the very thing predestined by God to happen The crucifixion was both against the will of God, his moral will, as well as being the will of God, his sovereign will. And I think the passage before us provides us with yet a further example of that same same phenomenon. While God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, there's something else that he's chosen to do in the present. It's not that his plan to bring evildoers to justice will be thwarted, He will do it. Just that he's chosen to do something else in the meantime. While he awaits to bring that full enactment into reality. And here I say is a demonstration of God's freedom. God is free here. What is staying God's hand? Nothing but God himself. And he's staying himself from doing something he wants to do. Interesting. Why? Okay, so we have a display here of liberty, of God's freedom, but why? Why hold back? You have the power to thwart all that rebellion, be done with it all. Every naysayer, every blasphemer, everyone who's ever persecuted one of your children. You just take care of them all right now. Why not now? Answer Paul gives, an opportunity for patience. Paul helps us see that God wishes to display another of his attributes in the time in between the commission of evil acts and his punishment of them. We're told here 
God endures with much long-suffering or patience. God manifests his incredible patience in the time between sin and the judgment of that sin. Although sinners are deserving of a swift and exacting judgment, God bears long with them, showing his incredible patience. So note this. Both God's actions and what we might call his inactions, we might refer to as delays, They aren't actually that, right? It's just God acting in history as he is determined to do so. But notice, those things which we view as delays, those things which we view as, let's let's get this show on the road, are actually being utilized purposely by God to put further attributes of his on display. He is manifesting his greatness and his goodness, both in his exacting judgment as well in his holding back judgment. Piper illustrates this uh, by use of a military analogy. In a conflict, a measure of patience and restraint at one point in the battle may secure a greater victory later. The glory and power of a commander, hear this, are more remarkably displayed in a combination of calm, patient restraint and swift, decisive action. Like this. You see, a good military commander doesn't just go, yes, 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 but goes, hold, 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 now, right? There's a moment of waiting, and sometimes the waiting is what is needed to expose weakness. Sometimes the waiting is what exposes great power. It's not just act, 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 act. It's act with wisdom. Recently, um, I think it was Joel is reading through the Odyssey for school. It reminded me of last year reading some of the Odyssey with Ashlyn, as it was assigned to her last year. And I was rereading some of the latter parts of the book. And um, it, you know, if you've never read the Odyssey, I mean, it's, it's a rough, it's a little tough read. Okay, you got you to get into there. But once you get into it, once you get 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 with the flow. Towards the end of the book, a little bit of spoiler. I'm sorry, it's an ancient book. You should have read it by now. Okay, um, it, so end of the book. Odysseus is, is coming back home, and there are just a ton of chapters where you're like, Odysseus needs to get rid of these bad people who've come into his, his kingdom. Like, there's all these suitors that have been living in his palace. They want to marry Odysseus's wife. She's still resolved that her husband hasn't died, but they're after her hand in marriage. They want power. They want the kingdom. And they won't leave her throne room. And they're eating all of his food. They're destroying the whole place. And Odysseus comes to town disguised. They don't know it's him. And then what we have is chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Yep, my daughter's nodding her head. Yeah, of like, come on, get him. You know, you're just sitting there, wait. Come on, Odysseus, get after this. And he's just holding back. And with every chapter, he learns a little bit more about where these people are. Is the goat herd for or against his family? Is the shepherds, are the shepherds for or against him? Which of these guys around the throne room are really doing what they're supposed to? Odysseus holds back. He holds back. He holds back. And you read chapter after chapter. And you're getting closer to the end of the book. You're like, when's this going to happen? And then swift, decisive action, judgment falls. Odysseus wins. The bad guys get it in a dramatic, swift, powerful way. But you see, by that point, it's undeniably clear who's for and against Odysseus. It's undeniably clear who's there for the kingdom and who's against the kingdom. No, those guys would be like, well, I didn't really know what I was doing. Oh, no, it was clear. It's not as if evildoers are going to get away with it. They're all being more fitted for destruction by their increased sin with which God suffers along. The more a sinner's years accumulate, the more their sinfulness and the more evident their condemnation. And as a result, we can just say this, the world is left without excuse. When punishment comes, it will be all the more striking. A lot of times people feel, I think, much like those suitors in that, in that palace. Oh, Odysseus is never coming back. There won't be any judgment. He's dead. Many sinners in this world think that there's no judgment coming, and they're going to be up in for a rude awakening. 
So God is displaying righteousness and power. He's also displaying freedom and long-suffering towards vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But what about the vessels of mercy? Let's close with them. To them, God makes, point three, a display of grace and glory. A display of grace and glory. First, note a manifestation of mercy. I do believe there's some crescendo to these verses. For all of the aforementioned actions of God, his wrath, his power, his freedom, his patience. I think all of those attributes of God are a good starting place for vessels of mercy to then come to understand what they've truly been given. In fact, you can't understand the mercy afforded to you until you recognize and come to grips with your sinfulness and God's holiness. Schreiner explains, the mercy of God would not be impressed on the consciousness of human beings apart from the exercise of God's wrath. Just as one delights more richly in the warmth, beauty, and tenderness of spring after one has experienced the cold blast of winter. Until you see the magnitude of your guilt, until you see the exacting nature of God's judgment, until you marvel at God's incredible patience and long-suffering, I don't think you'll appreciate the idea that God is merciful to sinners. It's when you realize that God doesn't owe you anything but judgment for your sinful rebellion that you'll come to recognize just how amazing is his grace. Robert Haldane said, the salvation of the elect is mercy, pure mercy. And it is wonderful mercy. When we consider what was the doom they deserved and would have experienced had they not been delivered by God through Jesus Christ? Mercy, pure mercy, wonderful mercy. Or in the great words of amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's a showing mercy. We also see a showing of glory. Vessels of mercy are made to known the riches of God's glory. This is the express reason we're told that he made these vessels. He prepared beforehand these vessels for glory, to know and experience and share in God's glory. Do you see how this furthers the truth that we read earlier in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30? We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that they would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also glorified, justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Note that this verb... While it is a slightly different verb than the fitted for destruction, the, the thing that's most glaring about the difference of this verb is that it's in the, the uh, active voice. It's not passive. It's not left up to, to you know, interpretive methodologies. Who's doing the fitting here? It is God who has prepared beforehand vessels of mercy. I think at this point, some, some commentators have even commented here that Perhaps even this choice of using passive when talking about fitted for destruction and having, bit fit, having bit, been fitted for destruction versus uh, God preparing beforehand vessels of mercy. Perhaps in even the difference of voice here, there's an indication that while God accomplishes all things in accordance with his sovereign will, he does not accomplish all things through the same means. In other words, in order for vessels of wrath to be fitted for wrath, God merely needs to give them over to the sin that is already there. They're already part of that lump of clay that is destined to perish. All God need do is give them over. We think of Romans 1 and that threefold repetition. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Give them over to the lust of the flesh. Harden them in their sinful rebellion. But for God to prepare vessels of mercy, what must he do? He must elect them. He must send his son to die for them and rise again. He must call them by the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit. You see, at the end of the day, are there still some things which we do not know? Absolutely. 
Why does this text choose some and not all? Well, the text before us does attempt an answer at that. It's related to God's desire to manifest his attributes. God wants to show who he is. He provides a forum for himself to display his righteousness and power, his freedom and patience, his grace and his glory. You mean this is all about God showing off himself? Yes. Why are some left to condemnation? Answer, because God wants to demonstrate his power and righteous wrath. Period. Why are they permitted, though, any amount of time between their rebellion and their judgment? Answer, to demonstrate God's freedom and patience. Why are any saved? Answer, to demonstrate God's mercy and grace. And the glory of God is displayed both in his judging righteousness as well as in his saving righteousness. Both the condemnation of sinners and the salvation of sinners end up magnifying the glory of God, his majesty. MacArthur says rightly, God has the absolute right to reveal and demonstrate his character in any way he chooses, whether by his just condemnation of, of people or by his gracious redemption of believers. Do you see how much of man's problem with the teaching of Romans 9 is that it all revolves around God and not us? God acts for his own glory. And sinful man chafes against this. This is the reason you can't hear this sermon if you don't receive the previous. Daniel Fuller explains, Just as it all altogether right for potters to use clay so they may make evident the full range of their skill, so it can only be right for God to deal with people in such a way that the full range of his glory becomes externalized. God knows himself perfectly. But how do we know God apart from him externalizing, showing us who he is? Those answers, those questions are answered here. You might not like the answers, but they're answered in the Bible. But why does God choose whom he does? Why this person and not that person? Why is a certain person elected unto salvation while another person is left hardened in their sin unto destruction? To that, I would say, other than to appeal to the wisdom and power and glory of God, I don't know. But the hard question is not, why do some go to judgment? That's what we all deserve. Justice is served in the damnation of sinners. The glorious mystery is why is any particular sinner saved? Augustine said, none he chooses is worthy, but choosing he makes them worthy. Yet he punishes none who does not deserve it. If God punishes rebels for their sin, who can object? If God mercies some, who can demand that he rescue all? Lloyd-Jones says it well. Where is the injustice of God showing his power and his wrath upon those who so richly deserve it? They're fitted to destruction. What is wrong about God showing, if he chooses, mercy to certain people when none of them at all deserve it? And God's saving work is only possible through Jesus Christ. God has chosen of his utterly free will to rescue souls of the perdition they deserve by sending his son Jesus to die in their stead upon the cross. And the wondrous news of the Bible, this promise remains that all those who will look to Christ, all those who will trust in Jesus are forgiven. Why? Because Christ came to take their penalty upon himself. Suffering for them, paying their debt. And then by God's grace, those who trust in Jesus are clothed with the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. Wonder of wonders. Those who get this understand we'll never get over that. And the question that will never get old is why me? I don't deserve this. I deserve judgment. And from that place of humility, there will always be room for us to worship. There will always be a place for us to rejoice. No matter what hardship, no matter what difficulty, no matter what may be pressing you low right now, 
to know that you deserve judgment eternally for your rebellion against the Almighty. And meanwhile, that Almighty, holy God, of his own free will, chose to bring you to himself, drawing you to himself, allowing you to hear the gospel not only outwardly, but hear it inwardly, where you believed it and you trusted in Jesus. It's all a work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. With that, you'll have deep, deep, deep gratitude. There won't be arrogance. There won't be pride. There'll be complete and utter humility. I don't deserve any of this. This is all to the glory of God. In the words of Charles Wesley's great hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your marvelous love, grace, and mercy. We also thank you for your holiness, your righteous wrath, your power, your freedom, your patience, your glory, your grace. It's good to be reminded and put in our place, reminded of your greatness and our smallness, your infinitude and our finitude, of our complete dependence upon you, and of our wretchedness, our sinfulness, our rebellion. And meanwhile, you, being not only holy and just and righteous in your wrath, patient are also loving and merciful. Lord, I pray even right now as we've been confronted with the gospel yet again this morning, if there are any lost souls that would admit that, would admit before you that they're sinners through and through, that they don't deserve salvation, that they deserve judgment, would you, we know they already are at that place, that's the work of, of the Spirit upon them. We know he brings conviction of sin. I pray that they wouldn't just feel sad about consequences that have fallen on them now, but that they would see it as rebellion against you, sinning against you. That they would repent, and that you'd grant them repentance and, and faith that would trust in your son, Jesus, and be saved even here this morning. Lord, for all of us who are already your children, I pray that the right, the right sort of attitude would attend these doctrines, that we would never get heady with this. It wouldn't, it wouldn't become something where we think we're just so brilliant and smart because we've, quote, quote, figured something out, but instead, Lord, that we would humbly receive from you that you have revealed this to be the case and that it would cause us to rejoice in you all the more, recognizing that you are putting on display your greatness and goodness. Help us to worship you with fervor, to love you strongly and to love others as a result as well. Help us to be good ambassadors of the gospel. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.